CRTs. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. (laughs) Here comes the State of the Union. Yes, my show today has a title. I think I'll start giving myself titles. Truth Decay. That's what it's all about. Truth Decay. Uh, uh, uh. Enough is enough. Right. Me too. All these wonderful slogans. Three syllables is best. Uh, (laughs) Propaganda needs to be uh, not just simple, but uh, it needs to be a bumper sticker. Philosophy by bumper sticker. Now, the president's speech this evening, a few hours from now, let's see. Uh That's going to be another trumped-up tale of grandiose (laughs) plans. And the familiar fact-free fake take on things as they are not, as they never have been and never will be, as far as I can tell. The State of the Union, (laughs) well, I guess, uh, State of the Union, fate of the Union. I wonder, uh, if I were D.J. Trump, I would say, well, it's another, another moment, another moment of, uh, Grandiose, yes. I want to fantasize, he says. Uh, He doesn't call it that. He says, I want to uh, be the huckster that I am and talk about the fate of the Union, you know, as he sees it. Uh, Surely, surely we should believe in ourselves. I think Mr. Trump does do that. His, His world is a fairy tale kingdom where all these know-nothing sycophants will sing his praises, dance to his tunes, da-da-da-da. Actually, no, I think he enjoys the hostility. He must on some level. It's coming at him. You know, people are throwing things at him, but (laughs) I guess he's just laughing all the way to the (laughs) Federal Reserve. Who knows? I I think he does government by anecdote. Ronald Reagan was pretty good at that, but 
uh, Donald Trump is uh, a whole, a whole new, a whole new level. Uh, it's just delightful. I call it fact-free fascism or friendly fascism. Someone called it not so friendly anymore. Uh, actually, no. The best, the best word is cockastocracy. Look it up. A cockastocracy is a state or nation ruled by its very worst citizens. That is, uh, has also trumped up something of a comedy. Uh, it's a half-hour uh, animated show. It's on uh, uh, cable TV. It airs weekly on the channel Showtime. Showtime. <laughs> yeah, that's Donald Trump. Showtime. Uh, Stephen Colbert's show is titled Cartoon President. Cartoon President. Got that? I am afraid that it's not funny. I only saw the first episode, but unless these writers, as Stephen Colbert, I guess, is the number one writer, producer on the show, unless they find something to satirize, something to get hold of, or in any way character, something uh, with some spine, a comic persona, uh, it needs to be Another person on the show, someone to represent sanity. Uh, the characters that he presents just have attitude. Uh, I don't think it's going to work. The vice president's wife, Karen Pence, had a few lines and then sat petered out. And I, you know, I dismissed the ghosts of... Mamie Eisenhower and Bess Truman. It wasn't even that kind of joke. Uh, well, what I'm saying is that there was a no there there on cartoon president. It's gone beyond cartoons. Uh, hmm. Virginia Woolf used to talk about Mussolini's uh, <laughs> comic aspects. Never mind, never mind. Uh, uh, you know, Mussolini used to write... Literary reviews, reviews of books. I remember Dorothy Parker once reviewed his uh, romantic novels. <laughs> there is no nonsense that the world will not uh, respond to. Uh, the only thing you can do with a show like that is simply to repeat what D.J. Trump says, his more egregious remarks. You might set those to music. But I don't think anything can rescue this incoherent uh, ignoramus. His uh, <laughs> his expressions are total nonsense. I give up, I give up. Uh, I'm afraid that he will manage to get an audience. Let's face it. Uh, people pay attention when you make an ass of yourself. Never mind. This week we lost... Ursula K. Le Guin, who died at the age of 88. Fabulous life. Fabulous. Uh, I remember uh, back in the day when she said that in the future we're going to need writers who can remember freedom. And I didn't get it. I just didn't get it. Uh, the left hand of darkness registered with me, but what really registered was that my children got her 
before I did. And I thought, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm missing the point. Uh, if you heard Women's Magazine yesterday, uh, 1 p.m., I think you can still get that, you know, push all the right buttons. Uh, Women's Magazine, 1 o'clock yesterday, they did an overview of Ursula Le Guin and her work. Uh, I am one of those who, even today, balk at science fiction, but that's not what it was really all about. She, of course, transcends uh, genres and all that. It just took me a few years to appreciate her power. Uh, the Left Hand of Darkness was, uh, what is that, uh, a breakthrough? Women writers always have a little trouble, um, the feminist fist in the darkness. I realized that uh, she was essentially a social, cultural critic, a public intellectual. So few serious literary critics uh, get it, uh, especially especially a woman who just raised three children up in Portland, Oregon, and lived a happy, uh, lovely life. Uh, of course, we weren't there. We don't know all the details, but in my generation, she was. Ah, uh, the words don't work anymore. A warrior? A woman hero? Ah, uh, well, uh, she had an Eastern education and all the awards and privileges and prizes in her lifetime. Aha. Uh -huh. Someone on the show yesterday said that uh, she did not suffer fools and I thought that is true. I interviewed her once myself and she was very patient with me. Uh, she was a woman writer in a time and age when as Virginia Woolf cautioned us the feminine was suspect. It was suspect even by women. I got some Virginia Woolf to read you because she says, no one is more critical of women than other women. Uh, now, Ursula Le Guin was a mere four years older than I, and uh, as I say, what struck me, what hit me between the eyes was when my children recognized her voice. Uh, huh? She was a, a kind of futurist, I thought. Yes, indeed. Uh, put her on my shelf with Margaret Atwood. That's another another spin. And behind them, Doris Lessing, Golden Notebook. Uh, the shelf is getting longer. Uh, she made those leaps of imagination. You know, it's the kind of thing that readers need to step outside, beyond limitations, outside the box, a nice phrase, yes. Most of us grew up in little boxes. Uh, the master narrative in our culture, in Western culture, you know, is stuck in the mud, and it's certainly masculinist. Hemingway was not a bad writer, but uh, he was not. He was not the quintessential only. Uh, who was it? Norman Mailer once came on television and he said, how did I know the women's movement was going to come along and wash me out to sea? And I thought to myself, he saw, he noticed, by golly, I give Norman Mailer points uh, in his books, 
his books here, he finally wrote one about uh, gender and sex. And at the end of it, he just said, well, if it's a question of who does the dishes, forget it. I wasn't going to do that. Uh, the agony of women writers who have resisted the masculinist tradition, the macho uh, fist, they defined it by their anguish. In my day, it was Sylvia Plath, Annie Sexton, the poets. Those two were my own introduction to a suicidal reality, speaking truth. <laughs> to jerks, <laughs> women's creativity. I used to write little plays about the death of women's creativity. I always called it her child and, you know... Uh, the uh, guys in the audience didn't get it, and I thought, well, metaphors don't make it. Uh, I retreated in my middle years, my 30s and 40s. I went back to my mother's books, and Edna St. Vincent Millay, and Dorothy Parker. They held my hand uh, while I was growing up and transcending the romantic mythos that I was raised on. I liked wisecracks. That was the style that was fashionable. And I remembered what Dorothy Parker said, that humor may be a shield, but it's not a weapon. Mm, I have to send that to Stephen Colbert. Uh, the jokes fall flat. when uh, Never mind. Edna St. Vincent Millay allowed woman to acknowledge the tragedy we still call romantic love. I don't know how it is. She died of it, and that got her respect from certain male critics. Uh, both genders suffer from the malaise of Western culture, the warrior or hero myth. Uh, but as Edna Malay herself said, whether or not we find what we are seeking is idle, biologically speaking. Uh, I guess I, I must have been 50 before I considered the possibility that we could live, that we could have life without illusions. <laughs> Ursula Le Guin just set aside all that 19th century anguish. Uh, I know she integrated it. Uh, Victorian poets certainly indulged in all that, all that nonsense. Well, Christina Rossetti, for me, was the quintessence of that romantic mythos, the emotional passions, which in her case transmuted all that stuff, that romantic love, into religious ecstasy. However... As Virginia Woolf tells us, man is not a god. You can't get anywhere worshipping him. Simone de Beauvoir explained that men would not look like such dwarfs if we hadn't asked them to be such giants, such gods. Uh, anyway, hmm. next time I think I will bring you some of the uh, old love poetry of a former time, but I think... Uh, I, I needed to uh, mellow out, I think. I read Anais Nin. Uh, that was the menopause. Oh, that's right, Jean Reyes and all those others who 
asked the questions none of us could answer. Back in the 1970s, the third wave feminists just boxed the compass. The beat poets uh, of the 50s, they came to the fore and they got to be popular. Yes, they even made it into school books. Uh, Diane de Prima, Revolutionary Letters, those little poems I loved. And Tosaki Shange, she wrote that play. Uh, for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. The mythos of black woman hit the, the uh, stage, Broadway. I saw that play over at the Zagiri or the Curran in San Francisco, and uh, I saw the majority black audience leaving the theater, and the men had this kind of look of chagrin. Uh, uh, you know how that is when... Somebody tells the truth about you. Uh, anyway, those writers turned me around. And when Toni Morrison won the Nobel Prize for Beloved, that unbelievable prose poem, I realized then that uh, woman's tragedy, the female feminine principle, you know, that that is the equal of a man's. Possibly it's more. Well, no measuring, no measuring. I'm going to read you a little Virginia Woolf about that measuring business. Uh, in Beloved, we had the tragedy of a mother whose baby, well, her baby girl, <laughs> mother decided that it was better to kill her child, just kill the baby, rather than uh, let her grow up in slavery, ship uh, I remember when I first read Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, a much maligned book. One of the first episodes was that of a mother who let her child drown a slave ship. You know, she didn't want the baby to come to the colonies. Uh, I thought of the main character in Beloved, Tessa. She... She had escaped slavery. She knew all the horrors uh, down in the South. She got to Ohio. But when she saw a slave trader coming for her children, well, her tormented soul, you know. Uh, her tragedy is like, uh, well, Shakespearean, King Lear, you know. That's not the only literary portrait of a deluded parent driven mad by the world's uh, evil? Do we use that word anymore? Uh, all it taught me was that a mother's tragedy can certainly be as great as a father's and uh, poetry as Virginia Woolf told us, poetry must have a mother as well as a father. I'm going back here to Virginia Woolf. I have my own essays published in the 80s, but I'll skip over those, save those for another day. Here's Virginia Woolf herself. Towards the end of her great essay, A Room of One's Own, Virginia Woolf writes, All this pitting of sex against sex, of quality against quality, all this claiming of superiority and imputing of inferiority 
belong to that stage of human existence where there are sides, and it is necessary for one side to beat another side, and of the utmost importance to walk up to a platform and receive from the hands of the headmaster himself a highly ornamental pot. As people mature, they cease to believe in sides, or in headmasters, or in highly ornamental pots. <laughs> now, footnote here from from moi. I'm thinking uh, how I need to remind you that this was written uh, 90 years ago in 1928, a room of one's own. 90 years ago, she was telling the world, well, those who would read her, that uh, there are no sides, no, well, calling it tribes. I heard somebody on the radio talking about the two sides or tribes that will be uh, discussed after the speech this evening. Anyway, let me read you a little more of Virginia Woolf. She's not just my mentor, but I just like to think of her as... uh, (laughs) <laughs> my my critic voice. I wish she'd been a critic as well as a fiction writer, but that's a problem. Charlotte Bronte, Emily Bronte, both of them should have been critics. They had to use fiction, but they did the best they could with what they had at hand. Here's Virginia Woolf. She says, praise and blame alike mean nothing. No, delightful as the pastime of measuring may be. It is the most futile of all occupations, and to submit to the decrees of the measurers is the most servile of attitudes. So long as you write what you wish to write, that is all that matters. And whether it matters for ages or only for hours, nobody can say. But to sacrifice a hair of the head of your vision... A shade of its color in deference to some headmaster with a silver pot in his hand or to some professor with a measuring rod up his sleeve. That's the most abject treachery and the sacrifice of wealth and chastity which used to be said to be the greatest of human disasters. That's a mere flea bite in comparison. Uh, Hmm. More Virginia Woolf. She's so much better than the voices I'm picking up on today. Uh, She writes, Next, I think that you may object that in all this I have made too much of the importance of material things. Another footnote here. Uh, A Room of One's Own was first a speech, a lecture given uh, with regard to the Uh, emergence of women's uh, higher education, women's colleges. Hmm. She goes on to say, even allowing a generous margin for symbolism, uh, she says that 500 a year, that is pounds, 500 a year, stands for the power to contemplate. That a lock on the door means the power to think for oneself. Uh, Still, you may say that the mind should rise above such things. You will say that great poets have often been poor men. Let me then quote you the words of your own professor of literature, 
One who knows better than I do what goes to the making of a poet. She quotes Sir Arthur Quiller Couch. <laughs> His book is called The Art of Writing. Here, uh, He wrote, What are the great poetical names of the last hundred years or so? Coleridge, Wordsworth, Byron, Shelley, Landor, Keats, Tennyson, Browning, Arnold, Morris, Rossetti, Swinburne. Oh, stop. She says, we may stop there. Of these, all but Keats, Browning, Rossetti were university men. And of these three, Keats, who died young, cut off in his prime, was the only one not fairly well-to-do. It may seem a brutal thing to say, and it is a sad thing to say, but as a matter of fact, the theory that poetical genius bloweth where it listeth, and equally in poor and rich, holds but little truth. My other footnote here is, yes, <laughs> George Bernard Shaw says that that may be dismissed uh, at once as idiotic. He, he writes about the fundamental economic facts. Uh, she goes on, Virginia Woolf, she says, as a matter of fact, nine out of those 12 poets mentioned above were university men which means that somehow or other they procure the means to get the best education England can give. As a matter of fact, the remaining three, you know, the ones that were not university men, uh, we know that Browning was well-to-do. I challenge you that if he had not been well-to-do, he would no more have attained to write uh, Saul or The Ring and the Book than Ruskin would have attained to writing modern painters if his father had not dealt prosperously in business. Rossetti had a small private income, and moreover, he painted. There remains but Keats. And she goes on. Uh, <laughs> I think Keats was 26, if memory serves me. A wonderful movie, if you ever get a chance to see it, uh, is called Bright Star. Two words from the famous Keats poem, Bright Star. It's all about Keats' love for Fanny, a young woman he was unable to marry because uh, he was too poor. Poverty uh, was a different affair back in the day. It's still the world's number one anguish. But it's a strange thing what's happened to poverty. Uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it is more of a social disaster uh, in America even the poor seem to get enough, well, sometimes enough to eat. Uh, what they seem to lack is any, what is that word? Uh, pride, self-confidence, self-love. Poetry, that's what it is, poetry. It is poetry that is denied an existence. Anyway, uh, oh, 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 Virginia Woolf goes on to say that, well, she's quoting this guy who says that uh, a poor poet has not in these days nor has had for 200 years a dog's chance. Hmm. Believe me, says this professor, Quinlan Couch, yes, believe me. And I have spent a great part of 10 years watching some 320 elementary schools. We may prate of democracy, but actually a poor child in England has little more hope than the son of an Athenian slave to be emancipated into that intellectual freedom of which great writings are born. Uh, 
Oh, Virginia Woolf goes on. She says, nobody could put the point more plainly. Not a dog's chance. That's it. Now, intellectual freedom depends upon material things. Poetry depends upon intellectual freedom. And women have always been poor, and not for 200 years merely, but from the beginning of time. And women have had less intellectual freedom than the sons of Athenian slaves. Women, then, have not had a dog's chance of writing poetry. That is why I have laid so much stress on money and a room of one's own. There's much more Virginia Woolf I have to read you. It's so wonderful that 90 years ago she put down the she put down the rules and I gotta say we have made a leap forward. Ursula Le Guin is proof. All those well she's 88, 90 years ago. 90 years ago she was about to be born. The last century has seen women's voices heard at last. I will be back on the air again next Tuesday. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. That's why we need a media that challenges the corporate power. When we cover war, we can't be brought to you by the weapons manufacturers. When we cover climate change, we can't be brought to you by the oil, gas, coal, nuclear companies. When we cover health care, we can't be brought to you by the insurance and the drug companies. We have to have a media that is a counterbalance to those in power. It's the only equalizing force. That's why you listen to and support 94.1 FM, KPFA. You're listening to KPFA 94.1.